Okay, let's do this. I reckon uh, stay in tomorrow and we'll have finished it. Oh, mice and men. Can't beat it. I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. I'm talking nonsense, essentially. So, let's get cracking. Hello, good morning, Cass. And Natalie and Kyle and everybody else. Nice one. So, let's get moving. Hang on, before I do, let's make sure this thing's working. Hmm. Oh, I seem to be... Uh... I am live, aren't I? Yeah? Can you hear me? Oh, yes, good. That's a huge lag, that, on my phone. Whoa, okay. I'm okay with that. Right. Don't tell me that I'm, whether I'm live or not. I now know I'm live. Um, okay, so... Let's go for it. Remember yesterday? We had the rather sad ending, didn't we? That Lenny is in the barn. He killed his puppy. He's playing with the puppy. Remember, he doesn't know his own strength. And he kills the puppy. Yeah? Hang on. Hang on a sec. Oh yeah, that's okay, that's alright. Sorry, sorry, I had a bit of a mind fritz there. Let's actually get cracking, shall I? Let's get cracking. So he has killed the puppy and he's sitting in the barn with the dead puppy. Curly's wife came around the end of the last stall. She came very quietly, so Lenny didn't see her. She wore a bright cotton dress and the mules with the red ostrich feathers. Her face was made up and the little sausage curls were all in place. She was quite near to him before Lenny looked up and saw her. In a panic, he shoveled hay over the puppy with his fingers. He looked suddenly up at her. She said, What you got there, sonny boy? Lenny glared at her. The judge says I ain't to have nothing to do with you. Talk to you on nothing. She laughed. <laughs> judge giving you orders about everything? Lenny looked down at the hay. Says I can't tend no rabbits if I talk to you or, or anything. She said quietly, he's scared Curly will get mad. Well, Curly got his arm in a sling, and if Curly gets tough, he can break his other hand. He didn't put nothing over on me about getting a cart and no machine. But Lenny was not to be drawn. No, no sir, I, I ain't gonna talk to you on, on nothing. She knelt in the hay beside him. Listen, she said, all the guys got a horseshoe tenement going on. It's only about four o'clock. None of them guys is going to leave that tournament. Why can't I talk to you? I never get to talk to nobody. I get awful lonely. Then he said, well, I, I ain't supposed to talk to you or, or nothing. I get lonely, she said. You can talk to people, but I can't talk to nobody but Curly. Else he gets mad. How'd you like not to talk to anybody? Then he said, well, well I, I ain't supposed to. George is scared I'll get in trouble. She changed the subject. What you got covered up there? Then all of Lenny's woe came back on him. Just my pup, he said sadly. Just my little pup. And he swept the hay out from on top of it. Why, he's dead, she cried. He, he was so little, said Lenny. I, I, I was just playing with him. And he made like he's going to bite me. And I made like I was going to smack him. And, and I'd done it. And, and, and then he was dead. She consoled him. Don't you worry, Nan. He was just a mutt. You can get another one easy. The whole country is full of mutts. It, 
it, it ain't that so much, Lenny explained miserably. George ain't gonna let me tend no rabbits now. Why don't he? He said if I'd done any more bad things, he ain't gonna let me tend the rabbits. Just, just tell another person, Lenny. That, that's absolutely fine. Um, can I just say, like, straight away, immediately Curly's wife talking about how lonely she is, that theme again of loneliness. Remember her horrible behaviour last time we saw her towards crooks? Um, yeah, being lonely turns you mean. Curly's wife's a very interesting character, isn't she? Because she's, on the one hand, horrible, isn't she? <laughs> I mean, the way she treats... Uh, Crooks is horrific. And in general, I mean, she is going around, she is being flirty. You know, she is causing trouble. But, on the other hand, the men are sexist towards her. They, they objectify her. Her husband's an utter pig. She knows, we saw last time, that he, he goes to whorehouses. He's off with prostitutes. They were just got married. He doesn't care. So, it... <laughs> There's reasons why she's like this as well, although I'm not going to say that her behaviour is fantastic either. But she's desperate for company. She's lonely, isn't she? She's desperate for affection, and her pig of a husband is not giving her that affection. Okay. She moved closer to him, and she spoke soothingly. Don't you worry about talking to me. Listen to the guys yell out there. They got four dollars bet in that tournament. None of them ain't going to leave till it's over. If, if George sees me talking to you, he'll give me hell, Lenny said cautiously. He, he told me so. Her face grew angry. What's the matter with me, she cried. Ain't I got a right to talk to nobody? What do you think I am anyways? You're, you're a nice guy. I don't know why I can't talk to you. I ain't do no harm to you. What, what, George says you'll get us in a mess. Ah, nuts, she said. What kind of harm am I doing to you? Seems like they ain't none of them cares how I gotta live. I tell you, I ain't used to living like this. I could have made something of myself, she said darkly. Maybe I will yet. Then her words tumbled out in a passion of communication, as though she hurried before her listener could be taken away. I'll just listen to that sentence. Doesn't that sum it all up? This loneliness, Lenny being the person people can talk to. So he doesn't understand things most of the time, and that's what makes him useful and also sends a, a, a real message to us all about this loneliness theme that Steinbeck's talking about. I mean, right, George is pretty well-adjusted and decent, uh, and that's because he's got company, so he hasn't turned mean. Um, Crooks, totally lonely. When he He's clever, isn't he? He's probably the most intelligent person in this, with the exception of Slim, who, as I said, isn't really a normal character. Crooks susses out that he can talk to Lenny and there'll be no consequences because Lenny doesn't understand. And so he uses it to actually, for the first time in years, talk to somebody. doesn't matter, as he said himself, if they don't understand or they're not listening. It's just two guys talking. It's just healthy, yeah? And now here's Curly's wife, and look at this. She's married to that pig, yeah? It's awful. And so she doesn't get a chance to speak to people. She doesn't get a chance to be herself and just chat and just relax. And so, well, when she gets the opportunity, as it said there, her words tumbled out in a passion of communication. She just can't stop it. It's so exciting to her that for once she gets to talk to somebody. Wow. I mean, 
yeah, th this notion of loneliness, this notion of turning you mean. And so here we go. And now, just as we've heard, um, Crooks' background. Yeah, I got that wrong. Right? All right, no, I haven't. Crooks' background, haven't we, through talking to Lenny. Now we're going to get Curly's wife's background. So. And this is something, and this really gets you to understand her. I live right in Salinas, she said. Come there when I was a kid. Well, a show come through, and I met one of the actors. He says I could go with that show, but my old lady wouldn't let me. She says because I was only 15. But the guy said I could if I'd went. I wouldn't be living like this, you bet. Then he stroked the pup back and forth. We're going to have a little place and, and, and rabbits, he explains. He's not, he's not listening, is he? Um, so do you see that idea about a show just very quickly? That it's the... Yes, this is before TV. Yeah? Radio is the big form of entertainment. But sometimes shows would come round. And they'd be like sort of... You know, like like usually like variety shows, I suppose you would call them. You know, different acts and different things, maybe a play, something like that. But these guys were entertainers traveling around the country, stopping in towns and making money by getting people to come and watch them. And so, um, there you are. She's she's met this guy in a show when she's a young-ish girl. You know, I guess mid-teens probably. And his and the actor says he can go and travel with them. And is where mum stops her. Put yourself in your, her mum's shoes. You got like a 14, 15, 16 year old daughter. Well, 15, 16, say. Some weird stranger comes into town, says, Come and travel with us. Be in our show. You're going to say, No, you can't, aren't you? I think that's good parenting. That's sensible parenting. Who the hell is this guy? Is he uh, going to put her in the show? Or is he just after a good time with her? And when he's finished with her, he'll just leave her abandoned somewhere miles away. You know, the next town. Mm, I think mum's right, isn't she? Anyway, Curly's wife wants to keep going. This rare opportunity to talk. She went on with her story quickly, before she should be interrupted. N another time I met a guy and he was in pictures. Went out to the Riverside Dance Palace with him. He says he was going to put me in the movies. Says I was a natural. Soon as he got back to Hollywood, he was going to write to me about it. She looked closely at Lenny to see whether she was impressing him. I never got that ladder, she said. I always thought my old lady stole it. Well, I wasn't going to stay no place where I couldn't get nowhere or make something of myself and where they stole your ladders. I asked her if she stole it too, and she says no. So I married Curly, met him right out in the River Dance Riverside Dance Palace that same night. <laughs> I mean... Well, there's a very telling line where she says she meets a producer from Hollywood. And and he was going to take her to Hollywood. And then she looked closely at Lenny to see whether she was impressing him. Oh, she's desperate to have for attention. She's desperate to impress people. I mean, bless him. Even Lenny, even Lenny to her is someone she can try to impress. Oh, you know. It's pathetic, the situation that she's got herself into. And she is a pathetic character. I don't mean that in a sort of nasty sense, but she's just sort of, oh, it's just, it's just awful. Right? Um, so she says, she goes out to the dance palace, or like a sort of club, if you like, in those days. And she meets this stranger who says he's come from Hollywood and that he's going to write to her and put her in the films, put her in the pictures. Um... Hmm. 
Do you reckon he really is? No, she's incredibly naive, isn't she? She doesn't have much knowledge of the real world. Um, there's no way that he's a, a Hollywood producer. Come off it. <laughs> this bloke is just a dirty old man who has turned up in a town that he's not from, has found a pretty young girl and had a roll in the bushes with her, let's be frank, and then the way he's impressed her, the way he's got her to have a roll in the bushes is by saying, I'm a big Hollywood producer. Come on, baby. I'm going to put you in the movies. Let's go around the back of the dance palace. That's why he's done it. He's just some perv, some fake. But she believes it. And then because the letter never comes to invite her to Hollywood, she thinks her mum must be stealing her letters, intercepting her mail to stop her going away. So she turns her anger onto her mum. This amazing proof that she's living in a place where they stole your letters is that she asked her if she stole it. And she said, no, well, that, that proves it, doesn't it? That proves it. And then the, <laughs> she must be stealing her letters if she says she isn't. And then the great tragedy of it all, I married Curly. Met him out of Riverside Dance Palace that same night. Oh, my God. The poor girl's just ruined her life. She's got a row with her mum about whether her mum's hiding letters. Her mum says, no, she isn't. So she storms out in the mood, straight to the dance palace, meets the first guy she can, and just to spite her mum, she ends up marrying him. And he happens to be the biggest pig on the planet. Oh, Curly's wife. Oh, dear. She demanded, you listening? Me? Sure. Well, I ain't told this to nobody before. Maybe I oughtn't to. I don't like Curly, he ain't a nice fella. Because she'd confided in him, she moved closer to Lenny and sat beside him. Could have been in the movies and had nice clothes, all them nice clothes like they wear, and I could have sat in them big hotels and had pictures took of me. When they had them previews, I could have went to them and spoke in the radio and it wouldn't have cost me a cent because I was in the picture and all them nice clothes like they wear. Because this guy says I was natural. She looked up at Lenny, and she made a small grand gesture with her arm and hands to show that she could act. The fingers trailed after her leading wrist, and the little finger stuck out grandly from the rest. Oh, bless her. She is so naive. You okay with the word naive? Yeah, somebody who just isn't in the real world. She just doesn't know how the world is. Her idea of being a film star is... Okay, it's a bit like modern ideas. Celebrity, isn't it? Just being famous for the sake of being famous. Because she says, she doesn't want to be a film star to be a great actress. She wants to be, because then she'd have nice clothes, all them nice clothes like they wear. And sitting in them big hotels, having pictures took of me. That, that her idea of being a star is not working and performing. It's being famous. And then in the premiere, she said, which she calls previews, I could have went to them and spoken the radio and it wouldn't cost me a cent because I was in the picture. So she thinks that <clears throat> if you're interviewed on the radio, because that makes you special because you're on the radio, you have to pay them, which obviously is not the case. And then she mentions the clothes again. And the guy says she was a natural. And then she does this gesture to show that she can act, but she has no idea what acting is, of course. So she does this gesture. So this is what proves that she can act. Doing that. Oh, bless her. 
I am an actress. My best Judy Dench impersonation there, pretty good, huh? Meanwhile, Lenny's not listening to anything, is he? Lenny sighed deeply. From outside came the clang of a horseshoe on metal, and then a chorus of cheers. Somebody made a ringer, said Curly's wife. Now the lice was lifting as the sun went down, and the sun streaks climbed up the wall and went over the feeding racks and over the heads of the horses. Lenny said, Maybe if I took this pop out and, and throw them away, George wouldn't never know. And, and then I could tend the rabbits without no trouble. Curly's wife said angrily, Don't you think of nothing but rabbits? We're going to have a little place, Lenny explained patiently. We're going to have a, a, a house, a, a garden, a place for alfalfa and alfalfas for the rabbits. And I take a sack and I get it all full of alfalfa and then I take it to the rabbits. She asked, What makes you so nuts about rabbits? Lenny had to think carefully before he could come to a conclusion. He moved cautiously close to her until he was right against her. I, I like to pet nice things. Once at a fair, I seen some of them long-haired rabbits, and they was nice, you bet. Sometimes I even pet mice, but not, not when I can get nothing better. Curly's wife moved away from him a little. I think you're nuts, she said. No, no, I ain't, then he explained earnestly. George says I ain't. I, I like to pet nice things in my fingers, soft things. She was a little bit reassured. Well, who don't, she said. Everybody likes that. I like to feel silk and velvet. Do you like to feel velvet? Lenny chuckled with pleasure. You bet, by God, he cried happily. And I, and I had some too. A, a lady gave me some, and that lady was my, my own Aunt Clara. She gave it right to me, about this bigger piece. I, I wish I had that velvet right now. A frown came over his face. I lost it, he said. I ain't seen it for a long time. Curly's wife laughed at him. You're nuts, she said. But you're a kind of nice fella, just like a big baby. But a person can see kind of what you mean. When I'm doing my hair sometime, I just sit and stroke it because it's so soft. To show how she did it, she ran her fingers over the top of her hair. Some people got kind of coarse hair, she said complacently. Take Curly, his hair is just like wire, but mine is soft and fine. Of course, I brush her a lot, that makes it fine. Here, feel right here. She took Lenny's hand and put it on her head. Feel right around there, see how soft it is. Lenny's big fingers fell to stroking her hair. Don't you mess it up, she said. And he said, oh, that's nice. And he stroked harder. Oh, that's nice. Look out now, you'll mess it. And then she cried angrily, you stop it now, you'll mess it all up. She jerked her head sideways and Lenny's fingers closed on her hair and hung on. Let go, she cried, you let go. Lenny was in a panic. His face was contorted. She screamed then and Lenny's other hand closed over her mouth and nose. Please don't, he begged. Oh, 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 please don't do that. George will be mad. She struggled violently under his hands. Her feet battered on the hay and she writhed to be free. And from under Lenny's hand came a muffled screaming. Lenny began to cry with fright. Oh, 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 please don't do none of that, he begged. 
George gonna say I've done a bad thing. He, he ain't gonna let me tend no rabbits. He moved his hand a little, and her hoarse cry came out. Then Lenny grew angry. Now don't, he said. I, I, I don't want you to yell. You're gonna get me in trouble, just like George says you will. Now, now don't do that. And she continued to struggle, and her eyes were wild with terror. He shook her then, and he was angry with her. Don't you go yelling, he says. And he shook her, and her body flopped like a fish. And then she was still, for Lenny had broken her neck. Oh, boy. Lenny has killed Curly's wife. We need to talk. Ah, that's not good. I think you may have worked that out already. I can't believe I started off by saying that. This has been foreshadowed. When you think about this, so many pieces fit into place. And you, you can see this coming now when you look back. Lenny is harmless in terms of his intentions, as Slim says, he ain't no mean fella. Remember, anything Slim says really is coming out of Steinbeck's mouth. So, <laughs> yeah, he's not meant to be a mean, mean fella. Some critics say that the way Steinbeck presents Lenny is a bit sentimental. It's like too cute. But we have seen that Lenny is prone to panicking, like with the girl in Weed where George has to hit him on the head with a fence picket to get him to let go of it. We have seen that he does not know his own strength. And we have seen he has phenomenal strength. Remember when he crushed Curly's hand? How strong do you have to be to crack every bone in another man's hand? He's terrifyingly strong. He panics. He doesn't know, understand the consequences of his strength. So he's dangerous. Remember when he loomed up over crooks? That was a dangerous moment. Um, he has, he keeps killing the mice, playing with them. I mean, in a way, that's not totally a surprise, is it? You keep a mouse in your hand and in your pocket, squeezing it and rubbing it. You're probably going to kill it. But he also has killed a puppy. <laughs> he loses his temper like he did with the puppy when it was dead, throwing it away from him. He's lost his temper with her as well. You know, he's lovely in terms of... He is lovely. He, he means no harm. He genuinely means no harm. But he is also dangerous. Now you've seen the consequence of that. The dead puppy at the start of the chapter is another example of foreshadowing, isn't it? Steinbeck dropping us a hint by saying, there's death in this scene. He kills the puppy and then he kills the girl. So, oh dear. Now we've got a situation on our hands, haven't we? Let's see what happens next. He looked down at her, and carefully he removed his hand from over her mouth, and she lay still. I, I, I don't want to hurt you, he said, but Judge will be mad if you yell. When she didn't answer nor move, he bent closely over her. He lifted her arm and let it drop. For a moment, he seemed bewildered. Then he whispered in fright, I, I'd done a bad thing. I, I'd done another bad thing. He poured up the hay until it partly covered her. From outside the barn came a cry of men and a double clang of shoes on metal. For the first time, Lenny became conscious of the outside. He crouched down in the hay and listened. I, 
I'd, I'd done a real bad thing, he said. I shouldn't have did that. George would be mad and he said, he said, and, and hide in the brush till he come. He's going to be mad in the brush till he come. That's what he said. Then he went back and looked at the dead girl. The puppy lay close to her. Then he picked her up. I, I, I threw him away, he said. It's, it's bad enough like it is. He put the pup under his coat and he crept to the barn wall and peered out between the cracks towards the horseshoe game. And he crept around the end of the last manger and disappeared. The, the, the sort of the, the confused logic of Lenny. He's done two bad things. Kill the puppy and kill the girl. I'll take the puppy away because if I get caught, having done two bad things, I'll be in twice as much trouble. Obviously, the killing of the girl trumps the killing of the puppy. The puppy's sort of irrelevant now, isn't it? But in his mind, that's just two equal bad things. I'll hide this one so I'm not in as much trouble. But he has. Fair play, lad. Remembered. Well done, Lenny. Hide in the brush. Remember at the very start of the book? Hide in the brush. Remember I said yesterday about the circular nature of this book? To both ends the same. Yeah. The scene that starts with a dead puppy ends with a dead girl. Back to the beginning of that scene. Crooks, the stars, is sitting rubbing his back. At the end of that scene, he's sitting rubbing his back. We start the book in the brush. Then he's going back there now. The sun streaks were high on the wall by now, and light was growing soft in the barn. Curly's wife lay on her back, and she was half covered with hay. The rest for the next two, three, four paragraphs are description. You've noticed by now, Steinbeck uses description very deliberately. I think it's partly a hangover of this being written as a play, because he needs timing. Sometimes there's great drama in all the action stopping. So just as we had that poignant moment of the dog slowly circling and resting after they've talked about it being shot, and it not knowing it, just like that poignant moment of Crux thoughtfully rubbing his back at the end of that scene, thinking about how he, for a moment, had hope himself and it's now gone. And now Steinbeck's going to give us a pause well, it partly feels realistic, doesn't it? It'd be a bit fake if immediately everybody comes in and says, Oh, look, there's the girl. Um, that would feel artificial. But by the same token, in this, we need time to stop and think and contemplate what's happened and what's going to happen next and what should happen next. And there's a descript... I mean, it creates a really effective atmosphere... The noises outside the barn, the, the reaction of dogs to the death. But also there's a paragraph where he describes Curly's wife. Uh, and I think that's worth paying attention to when you revise Curly's wife. Because it's Steinbeck telling us what he is intending her to be. He lists what she is. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> quite handy. <laughs> Very good of him to do that for your exam, isn't it, really? So anyway, let's get the description done. The sunstreaks were high on the wall by now and the light was growing soft in the barn. Curly's wife lay on her back, and she was half covered with hay. It was very quiet in the barn, and the quiet of the afternoon was on the ranch. Even the clang of the pitched shoes, even the voices of the men in the game seemed to grow more quiet. The air in the barn was dusky in advance of the outside day. A pigeon flew in through the open hay door, and circled and flew out again. Around the last stall came a shepherd bitch 
lean and long with heavy hanging dugs. Halfway to the packing box where the puppies were, she caught the dead scent of Curly's wife and the hair arose along her spine. She whimpered and cringed to the packing box and jumped in among puppies. Curly's wife lay with a half covering of yellow hay and the meanness and the plannings and the discontent and the ache for attention were all gone from her face. She was very pretty and simple and her face was sweet and young. Now her rouged cheeks and her reddened lips made her seem alive and sleeping very lightly. The curls, tiny little sausages, were spread on the hay behind her head and her lips were parted. As happens sometimes, a moment settled and hovered and remained for much more than a moment and sound stopped and movement stopped for much, much more than a moment. Then gradually time awakened again and moved sluggishly on. The horses stamped on the other side of the feeding racks and the halter chains clinked. Outside, the men's voices became louder and clearer. Almost feels like a stage direction again, doesn't it? And the horses stamping the halter chains is often a motif that we have before action's about to happen because they are moving around, signifying movement from somebody else. From around the end of the last stall, old Candy's voice came. Lenny, he called. Oh, Lenny, you in here? I've been figuring some more. Tell you what we can do, Lenny. Old Candy appeared around the end of the last stall. Oh, Lenny, he called again. Then he stopped and his body stiffened. He rubbed his smooth wrist on his white stubble whiskers. I didn't know you was here, he said to Curly's wife. When she didn't answer, he stepped nearer. You oughtn't to sleep out here, he said disapprovingly. And then he was beside her and... oh. Jesus Christ, he looked about helplessly and he rubbed his beard and then he jumped up and went quickly out the barn. But the barn was alive now. The horses stamped and snorted and they chewed the straw of their bedding and they clashed the chains of their halters. In a moment, Candy came back and George was with him. George said, what was it you wanted to see me about? Candy pointed at Curly's wife. George stared. What's the matter with her, he asked. He stepped closer and then he echoed Candy's words. Ah, oh, Jesus Christ! He was down on his knees beside her. He put his hand over her heart and finally, when he stood up slowly and stiffly, his face was as hard and tight as wood and his eyes were hard. Candy said, What done it? George looked coldly at him. Ain't you got any idea? He asked. And Candy was silent. Shouldn't you, George said hopelessly. Guess maybe way back in my head I did. Candy asked, What are we going to do now, George? What are we going to do now? George was a long time in answering. Guess we got to tell the guys. Guess we got to get him, lock him up. We can't let him get away. Why, the poor bastard starve. He tried to reassure himself. Maybe they'll lock him up and be nice to him. Candy said excitedly, we ought to let him get away. You don't know that Curly. Curly's going to want to get him lynched. Curly will get him killed. George watched Candy's lips. Yeah, he said at last. That's right, Curly will. And the other guys will. And he looked back at Curly's wife. So remember I've been saying all along this lawless, dangerous atmosphere. And here we are. They're not going to call the cops. Curly's going to get the guys hunt Lenny down to kill him. So what does George do? Oh, thank you, Natalie. Nice comment there. Thank you, Natalie. Um, so, 
Now, Candy spoke his greatest fear. You and me can still get that little place, can't we, George? You and me can go there and live nice, can't we, George? Can't we? Before George answered, Candy dropped his head and looked down at the hay. He knew. George said softly, I think I knowed right from the very first. I think I knowed we'd never do it. He used to like to hear about it so much, I got to thinking maybe we would. Then, it's all off. George didn't answer his question. George said, I'll work my month and I'll take my 50 bucks and I'll stay all night in some lousy cat house or I'll sit in some pool room till everybody goes home. Then I'll come back and work another month and I'll have 50 bucks more. The dream is dead. The dream has died. Aww. And now George talks about his future, what it's going to be now. It's not telling the dream and that lovely house they're going to have and them saving up, rolling up a stake. It's going to be him wasting his money. Just like you said, I said early on, all the other workers, they make their money from, they make their money and then they splurge it all on women and drink in the whorehouse and then they got nothing and they go back to the beginning again. Candy said, such a nice fella. I didn't think he'd do nothing like this. George still stared at Curly's wife. Lenny ever done any meanness, he said. All the time he'd done bad things, but he never done one of them mean. He straightened up, looked back at Candy. Now listen, we gotta tell the guys. They gotta bring him in, I guess. There ain't no way out. Maybe they won't hurt him, he said sharply. I ain't gonna let him hurt Lenny. Now you listen. The guys might think I was in on it. I'm gonna go in the bunkhouse. Then, in a minute, you come out and tell the guys about her. And I'll come along and make like I've never seen her. Will you do that so the guys won't think I was in on it? Candy said, sure, George, sure I'll do that. Okay, give me a couple of minutes then. And you can run it out and tell her like you just found it. I'm going now. I'm going now. George turned and went quickly out the barn. Old Candy watched him go. He looked helplessly back at Curly's wife and gradually his sorrow and his anger grew into words. Goddamn tramp, he said viciously. You done it, didn't you? I suppose you're glad. Everybody knows you'd mess things up. You wasn't no good. You ain't no good now, you lousy tart. He sniveled and his voice shook. I could have hoed in the garden and washed dishes for them guys. He paused and then went on in a sing-song. Oh, he's the old story again, but now with that totally different context because the dream's dead. And he repeated the old words. If there was a circus or a baseball game, we'd have went to it. Just said to hell with work and went to it. Never asked nobody say so. It'd be the pig and chickens and in the winter, little fat stove, the rain coming in, and us just sitting there, his eyes blinded with tears, and he turned and went weakly out the barn, and he rubbed his bristly whiskers with his wrist stump. Outside, the noise of the game stopped. There was a rise of voices in question, a drum of running feet, and the men burst into the barn. Slim and Carlson and Young White and Curly. That should be Wiss, that's a misprinting. And Crooks, keeping back out of attention range. Candy came after them, and last of all came George. George had put on his blue denim coat and buttoned it, and his black hat was pulled down low over his eyes. The men raced around the last stall. Their eyes found Curly's wife in the gloom. They stopped and stood still and looked. Then Slim went quietly over to her and he felt her wrist. One lean finger touched her cheek 
and then his hand went under a slightly twisted neck and his fingers explored her neck. When he stood up, the men crowded near and the spell was broken. Curly came suddenly to life. I know done it, he cried. That big son of a bitch done it. I know he done it while everybody else was out there playing horseshoes. He worked himself into a fury. I'm going to get him. I'm going for my shotgun. I'll kill the big son of a bitch myself. I'll shoot him in the guts. Come on, you guys. He ran furiously out of the barn. Carlson said, I'll get Maluga. And he ran out too. Curl. It's sort of reeling, isn't it, when they find Curly's wife? It's Slim who goes to her, not Curly. Curly's a pig, isn't he? Eh? Don't write that he's a pig in the exam, but he's a pig between you and I. He's a pig, isn't he? He's horrible. He doesn't love her. She's a trophy wife. She's a beautiful girl. He's married to show off how brilliant he is. She looks good on his arm. She's an object. Curly's wife. Not given a name. We never learn her name, but he owns her. Curly's wife, apostrophe S. And he's not hit by genuine emotion when he sees her. Slim is the one who reacts. Curly should be going to her. Slim's the one who goes to her. And then he comes suddenly to life. And it's anger, isn't it? It's not love. It's not grief. It's not trauma. It's anger. He's not horrified and upset because his wife has been killed. He's angry because somebody's broken something he owns. You know what I mean? Someone comes and breaks your favourite possession. It's more that sort of thing. That phrase is so telling when it says, he worked himself into a fury. He doesn't feel anger as such. He doesn't feel the emotion he should be feeling. He has to work it in uh, himself up to feel it and to do that, get into this frenzy of, let's do it, let's get him. Yeah. But all he talks about is, I'm going to get him. Yeah. I'm going to punish and get revenge on the guy who damaged my thing, his wife, and wrecked my hand and humiliated me. This is my chance. He doesn't at any point say, oh, my wife, my wife. Yeah. Um, contrast with Macbeth, who, you know, by the end of the play, is a monster. Let's be honest. He's a monster. And yet, when he hears his wife is dead, even though he is utterly obsessed with his own power and protecting it, when he hears of his wife's death, he just makes a brief breakaway from that character to reflect on the death of the woman he loves and the, the and how life is a brief candle and we're all on a dusty road to death. And it's a short, beautiful moment of genuine feeling. Whereas this is, I'm going to get my own back. Nice one, Curly. What a lovely man Curly is. <sighs> right, about a page more. And we'll stop. Slim turned quietly to George. Yes, Lenny done it all right, he said. Her next burst. Lenny could have did that. George didn't answer, but he nodded slowly. His hat was so far down his forehead, his eyes were covered. Slim went on. Maybe like that time and weed you was telling about. Again, George nodded. Slim sighed. Well, guess we got again. Where you think he might have went? seemed to take George some time to free his words. He, he would have gone, went south, he said. We, we come from north, so he would have went south, sending him in the wrong direction there. If, then he's going back to the brush. Yes, we got to get him, Slim repeated. George stepped close. Couldn't we maybe bring him in and they'll lock him up? He's, he's not Slim. He never done this to be mean. Slim nodded. We might, he said. If we could keep Curly in, we might. But 
Curly's going to want to shoot him. Curly's still mad about his hand. It's not the truth. Slim's always right, isn't he? Yeah. Curly's angry about his hand more than the wife. He wants revenge. Suppose they lock him up and strap him down and put him in a cage. That makes no good, George. I know, said George. I know. Carlson came running in. The bastard stole my Luger, he shouted. It ain't in my bag. Curly followed him, and Curly carried a shotgun in his good hand. Curly was cold now. So firstly, the gun's gone. Carlson's gun, the one he used to shoot the dog, it's gone now. And Curly's cold now. He's done his working himself up into a fury and getting people to see that he's angry. But now he's calm and cold and calculating. He doesn't feel the death of his wife at all, does he? All right, you guys, he said. The nigger's got a shotgun. You take it, Carlson. When you see him, don't give him no chance. Shoot for his guts. I'll double him over. Which said excitedly. I ain't got a gun, Curly said. You go and sold that. Get a cop. Get Al Wilts. He's deputy sheriff. Let's go now. He turned suspiciously on George. You coming with us, fella? Yeah, said George. I'll come. But listen, Curly, the poor bastard's nuts. Don't shoot him. He didn't know what he was doing. Don't shoot him, Curly cried. He got Carlson's Luger. Of course we'll shoot him. George said weakly. Maybe Carlson lost his gun. See it this morning, said Carlson. No, it's been tuck. Slim stood looking down at Carl Curly's wife. Slim, his one last effort to try and control Curly. He said, Curly, maybe you better stay here with your wife. Curly's face reddened. That's, you know, whether it's from anger at being challenged like that or embarrassment, because really everyone knows deep down he should maybe show some affection towards his wife. I'm going, he said. I'm going to shoot the guts at that big bastard myself, even if I only got one hand. I'm going to get him. Yeah, that's untrue, isn't it? I've lost my hand to that guy. I'm going to get him. That's what his motivation is. Slim turned to Candy. Better stay here with her and then, Candy. The rest of us better get going. They moved away. George stopped a moment beside Candy, and they both looked down at the dead girl until Curly called. You, George, you stick with us. We don't think you had nothing to do with this. George moved slowly after them and his feet dragged heavily. And when they were gone, Candy squatted down in the hay and watched the face of Curly's wife. Poor bastard, he said softly. The sound of the men grew fainter. The barn was darkening gradually, and in their stalls the horses shifted their feet and rattled the halter chains. Old Candy lay down in the hay and covered his eyes with his arm. When did he do that before? When the dog died, the dog died, he covered his eyes with his arm to hide the crying. And now the dream dies, and he covers his eyes with his arm. This eye imagery, the, the way Candy covers his eyes when something horrible's happened, when he's lost something precious to him. The eyes, George covering his eyes then. Ooh. I'm going to stop there. Any questions, throw them in, or as always, I'll leave the end screen running for a bit afterwards. So if anybody wants to ask anything, I can come to it tomorrow. Um, and tomorrow we'll finish. So tomorrow will be the last one. I'll do a video on the meaning of, uh, of Mice and Men's title, which is based on a poem by Rabbi Burns, the great Scottish poet. So I'll, I'll do that as well. Um, I'm trying to work out what to do next. I'll happily do some stuff on the themes and characters, but maybe it's better I just do those as videos rather than live streams.